I think if I had to guess, it's, it's kind of like the success of Stretch Lab too. Like they had a large addressable market. Like Pilates is a very, like people want to work out. Like whatever your opinion is of fitness and health and wellness, like people want to typically, and the Wall Street Journal actually had a really good article about this. Like, yeah, the whole garage, you know, people can work out by themselves or behind a computer, but like people don't want that. They want the community. And that's what kind of gave growth to this whole boutique fitness thing. But I think the addressable market is very big for Pilates. Same thing with Stretch Lab. Like Stretch Lab's 15-year-old to 70-year-old and everything in between. When you start getting into some of the other modalities, it gets that market size gets shrunk pretty drastically. And I think that was it. And then they got out front. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, it's the Wolf. Today on the show, I have Drew Carpenito, and this is also a newer format that we're testing out. So Drew and I just riff, go back and forth on interesting topics happening right now in the franchise industry, talk about a lot of different brands, some of the cycles and hype cycles that happen in the industry and what you should know about them as a franchise buyer. We talk about what's going on with Crumble Cookies and some of the the cookie craze that's occurring in the industry. So if you're interested in buying franchises, if you work in the industry, this is uh, a relevant podcast and we try to keep it light and have fun with it. So I hope you enjoy. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. Crushing your dinner rush is table stakes. You need the HR and payroll solution that keeps you and your staff prepped for tomorrow. Paylocity helps HR focus on your employees by making recruitment smarter and onboarding faster. Visit paylocity.com slash restaurants. The franchise hype cycle. So obviously I tweeted about that. And you know what? Let me read it for people who, if you're not on Twitter, folks, check it out on Twitter. Or sign up for his newsletter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... The hype cycle, I described it as a new brand hits the market. If they have a good corporate unit, right? We see this all the time. Like they're able to sell some crop of new franchisees pretty quickly based off their corporate performance. Then phase two kicks in, which is like, and maybe this doesn't even have to happen. Honestly, sometimes it's harder to explain that nuance on Twitter. But like if those franchisees, so any, like if you have a good, a couple, just two even, right? Who show some proof of concept. Then all of a sudden that they're saying like, hey, look, like these franchisees are now like they're going to hit our corporate stores. Like we like this works. We proved it. And then the brand blows up, sells out the entire country. And then after that, this is phase three, franchise competitors start popping up. And all of those competitors oftentimes are saying, hey, look at, you know, that brand. We're doing the same thing. It's going to be great. We're all going to make a ton of money. Look at their number. Look at their item 19 and, and we can do the same yeah. thing in ours. Exactly. Which is kind of like very odd, like using a totally different companies' financials to justify your business's investment. (laughs) But it works. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, people fall for that hype. They buy into the second or third or fourth or depending on the category, right? Like cookies is 10 brands. Like there's 10 to 15 brands in that category. People buy those brands and 
to me, what I said, the result is it's oversaturation, not just from like the franchise industry of like how many brands are in this subsector, but also like if you really think through your local market, wherever you're trying to build these, like think about all these brands, like your one town or county can't support, you know, all these different, now let's just stick with cookies, cookie concepts there and franchisees end up getting hurt. It's like either the brand they bought isn't actually legit because they don't know what they're doing. They're just trying to cash in on some trend or, you know, maybe there already is like if it's cookies, if there is three crumbles in your town, like you're not just going to magically replicate their numbers. You're going to probably eat into their market share just by nature of being open. But anyway, I'll stop there. Just thoughts on the whole hype cycle. You've been around longer than me. So like, do, do you agree with it? Have you seen it before or, you, you know, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I think you see it a lot of times whenever there is a unicorn franchise pop up in like a new, typically yeah. it's a new segment, but like Crumble Cookies had already been around. So it's kind of interesting, but yeah. Yeah. And then people don't review the franchise agreement because there's this craze, there's buying frenzy for the franchises that, that are happening. So you don't necessarily maybe do the due diligence on the agreement as much as you could to try to get, you know, greater protections and stuff like that. It's a feeding frenzy. Like it's happening with game day and men's health right yeah. now, right? Yeah. Happened the last six months of last year. I think that's probably like, you just don't know. And it probably gets into like the higher risk category of investing in a franchise, right? Like could be amazing because people yep. are making, people have success with it. But there's also like, you know, if it doesn't work out, it's because there wasn't enough proof of concept to probably dig into to, that's been around long enough to demonstrate sustained success. And that's, you know, especially with brick and mortar, you know, you get, you sign those leases and you're, you're in a lease and there's only so much you can control. I'll say this, like everybody talks about conversations they have with Crumble franchisees, right? Well, I had a conversation with one today. He was looking at diversifying a little bit because he said, you know, he got in 2022, opened one and crushed it. Like lines around the block, making a ton yeah. of money. And then Crumble had like, a, from what he said, like the development agreement was pretty aggressive. It was like three and 12 months, maybe something like that. So he opened two more in like six months and the performance has not, replicated and yeah you know and i'm like dude you're spoiled like you want me to show you another <laughs> franchise like crumble i can't like you got yeah. it good but they are the, the the financial aspects of it aren't as good as they were because of a lot of the stuff you said competitors other crumble locations and i don't know like you don't know like in a frenzy like that like how it's all gonna play out that's the biggest thing i think it's like i mean it almost sucks for the franchise doors it's like you do a killer job you build an awesome couple small businesses you know whatever create an awesome brand, do all the systems, right? And you grow your franchise and you're a smash success. And like, I almost think like the biggest risk to a successful franchise isn't even themselves or anything else. It's like just the copycats they're going to spawn. And yeah, I mean, it's happened before, right? With not just cookies, like boutique fitness, I think. Well, I, I would challenge you on that a little bit. Yeah, boutique fitness, like, yeah. like Orange Theory, sustained success. You mentioned yeah. Exponential. I know those guys really yeah. well. Club Pilates, what is a sustained success? And it was a feeding frenzy. And I mean, I sat through that conference. I sat through three days and got pitched by 128 different franchise companies, all non-food. And I can't share the numbers that they shared with us, but put it this way, their AUVs keep going up. Like the average unit volume really? of their locations yeah. keep trending in a very positive direction, which is like, it's freaking Pilates. Like you don't draw that one up on, you know, why is that? That's one like because, right, there's all these different if we just look at exponentials brands, right? Like they have like row house. So you go there. I'm thinking like from the consumer's perspective, all you can do there is get on a rower and do some workout class with other people and an instructor. They have that same like copy and paste model for like they have stride. So it's just treadmills. 
And then, yeah, they've got, I know a bunch of other concepts, but Pilates, like if you look at like cycling, there's cycle bar and burn boot camp. I think it's primarily on bikes, stationary bikes. Anyway, like Pilates, you're right. I mean, for one, that was, I think they are the, if they're one of the OG, if not the OG boutique fitness, like I think it was founded in 2008 and like Orange Theory wasn't even founded then. Orange Theory was like 2010, 2011. And like they were one of the early ones too, to this whole boutique fitness trend. So like, I wonder if there's something there for like from a longevity standpoint of just that first mover advantage. But I haven't seen, like, I don't know. I couldn't name a single other Pilates franchise. That's still a big enough category of working out where I notice like, you know, whether I'm in New York City or even like in the suburbs where my parents live in New Jersey, like there's always moms or a bunch of people trying to do Pilates. <laughs> and like, I don't see other concepts out there. So what do you think is going on with that? I wish I was smart enough to answer that question here. So here's my, <laughs> here's what I would tell you. Like, I think like Orange Theory got out front and got the market share and the high intensity, you know, I want to yes. make you puke for 50 minutes kind of workout. And people love <laughs> it's that. It's awesome, dude. I I love it. It's fucking awesome. I can't do it. I, I tried it. I'm just like, <laughs> I just give me the Pilates and I'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm, I'm getting old, dude. I'm getting old. Uh, but I think if I had to guess, it's, it's kind of like the success of Stretch Lab too. Like they had a large addressable market. Like Pilates sure. is a very... Like people want to work out, like whatever your opinion is of fitness and health and wellness, like people want to typically, and the Wall Street Journal actually had a really good article about this. Like, yeah, the whole garage, you know, people can work out by themselves or behind a computer, but like people don't want that. They want the community. Yes. And that's what kind of gave growth to this whole boutique fitness thing. But I think the addressable market is very big for Pilates. Same thing with Stretch Lab, like Stretch Lab's 15 year old to 70 year old and everything in between. When you start getting into some of the other modalities, it gets that market size gets shrunk pretty drastically. And I think that was it. And then they got out front, you know. But even with yep. Stretch Lab, you got Stretch Zone, like they, they're kind of boat racing, you know, for on the stretching side of things. So it's kind of interesting. But I, I think it has to do with just how big the market is for a lot of it. And then the pole getting that pole position is important. I completely agree. And that actually goes to like what I said at the end of my hype cycle kind of rant on Twitter was like, Obviously, like most businesses aren't winner take all scenarios, right? I think that, and that's when I first started working with emerging brands, that was the most, you know, we worked with a concept called the Petwell Clinic and it's basically like urgent care, but for dogs and cats. And there wasn't like, there's not, still not really a national competitor that's like doing that. Uh, There's a bunch of regional vet clinics that do similar stuff, but that was the number one thing while we just started expanding them is, hey, like, you know, there's this other franchise with like five locations that's doing that. And, you know, you look at, Obviously, not every category is as big as like burgers, right? But if you look at, imagine if like people like McDonald's took off first and everyone after that was just like passing on Burger King, Wendy's, Five Guys, Culver's, I don't know, Hardee's. I don't even know if Hardee's is a good investment actually, but like, you know, point is, right? There's a lot of room for a lot of concepts. Yeah. Pizza. Yeah. My overall thought is like for these hype cycles, like if you see a brand and you're like, oh, like this has a lot of buzz, like a game day, right? How can a buyer actually like know, like, is this like something I should move forward with or not? There's kind of two facets to it. It's like one, your local market, I do think matters, right? Like you should be looking at like how big, how many potential customers, like what's the total addressable market for your area? Make sure you secure that territory, right? So that other franchisees can't cannibalize you in the future. But looking at your local market and like thinking of like how big could this actually get for my market? And then is it sustainable, right? Or is it a trend, right? Because the boutique fitness thing you're talking about, like Pilates here to stay for a long time, a lot bigger, whereas maybe some of these smaller concepts, A, like there's not as many customers, but like, you know, is rowing going to be sustained? Like just a rowing only workout? I mean, the only people I know who row 
regularly with the dudes who were on the crew team in college. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone yeah. else is like, what are you guys doing? You're psychotic for wanting to do that. But yeah, if you're working with the buyers looking at a game day or someone, just, you know, how, how do you really think through the risks of like a trendy or a hot brand like that? In the perfect world, right? Like a franchise company will have a good enough sample size of, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 franchisees that have been operating the business oh, for, you know, for sometimes sure. you can gain a lot of insight from them. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, there's a gamble in it, right? You can do all the oh, research sure. in the world and, you know, those PE bros that have analysts of analysts of analysts, you know, they can do the research, but like for the average yep. Joe, like getting into a business for the first time, like you got to size the leadership team up and, you know, all that kind of stuff at the franchisor level. And then at the unit level, you know, you got to take a gamble and try to hedge your risk as best you can. But dude, it's, it's also interesting you say that because it's almost, I, I know you weren't saying this, but like I've noticed PE seems to front run these trends in franchising now, like, uh, Ellie Mental Health, they got like an investment from uh, what's the name, Princeton Equity Group, uh, I think. Yeah, what well, they didn't like front very run early. It. Well, what? Well, they didn't front run it. Well, I think it was like the fifteen locations open tops and like a hundred or two hundred plus sold, and like they put a pretty sizable check into them. I don't. know, To me, that's front running a trend. I don't know if I should say this on the podcast, <laughs> but I'll, I'll give generality. I know the terms of the deal. Well, oh, I, I, through, through the through the great come vine. on man spill the, it. All right. spill so it. the terms so so here's what happened with ellie right like again like hey okay so mental health that ain't going anywhere yeah right like no, now we got problems fam yeah we got problems yeah, i'm waiting for the one to open up around the corner for me so i can go sit on the couch and and uh <laughs> exactly. and that's a, that's you know that's research and development yeah for what i do <laughs> no yeah. um yeah i really don't wish i said that irs if you're listening i'm just kidding um all right so anyways <laughs> no but like so ellie like mental health big market they had what, 12 or 13 corporate locations in Minneapolis, and they did a oh, good job. did they have that many in Minneapolis, 12 or 13? Yeah, they had a big number oh, wow. in Minneapolis-St. Paul, and they did a good job of publishing the numbers as best they could in their item 19. We're coming out of the pandemic. You know, mental health is at the forefront of, you know, because kids and everybody, like mental health is still a big thing. Yeah, but people are lonely. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was definitely was, heightened because and of the, COVID. And Ellie didn't plan to grow the way that they grew. And the FSO they were working with didn't plan to grow the way that they did. And the majority of that growth came through the broker networks. And they sold, I mean, it was like 500 units within yeah. like 18 months. And they had zero franchise locations open. So they had no, like there was no franchisee validation, but you had mental health was the thing. And like, you know, and then Ellie has this, you know, they, insurance is a big piece of that. And they, they've got some kind of back-end infrastructure that, that helps the franchisees to with the billing and the intake and all this kind of stuff. So it's a complicated business, especially if you get into like California and stuff like that. But so they sold all these franchises, hadn't opened them yet. And Princeton or whoever the, the private equity group was came in and stroked a big check because they liked yeah. the space. Behavioral health, it's kind of one of these untapped space. And that's what all that the PEs always kind of, you know, they're always looking for these niches like so that basically Princeton's going to buy it hold it for three to four years, get it open, make the books look a lot better. And they're going to flip it to the next big PE yeah, company yeah. up the ladder. And um, yep. you know that's how it's going to go. But Ellie basically did that self-funded to get to that first phase, that first transaction. That's huge. That's Which impressive, is wild. man. Yeah. And wait, so if I'm a franchisee, am I like, I'm sure it's, you don't need a big space, but like, am I hiring a therapist to, to be in? Do you you know have to, yeah. Yeah, well, you have to, right? Uh, unless you're qualified to listen to somebody talk about their their stuff yeah no i mean like it was like they had a way to recruit therapists to help them spend more time with patients to increase the billable hours which means they can make more money 
So yeah, all, most of the franchisees like are hiring a clinical director that's going to run the, the practice and then hiring therapists underneath of it and then obviously making money off the billable hours and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I also, I'm not by no means an expert on like therapy business. It's like an industry, but I guess I just, I feel like most are like they're running their own shop. Like it's like, I'm a therapist and yeah, you know, you just like, I'm the only person who's at this practice, but I guess I'm sure there's others who like work under bigger practices and they don't want to do everything. I mean, yeah, this goes back to like franchising 101. Probably therapists out there who don't want to create their own website and handle marketing and all these other things that have nothing to do with working with your patients. So I could see that working. Yeah. I mean, they were at the conference I was at three few weeks ago and they opened a hundred clinics in like 12 months, which is a big number. Oh, that's impressive. Thank God. Yeah. Now there was some learning pain. That's the thing. Like if you're early in with any kind of these brands, even if it's not growing at this insane rate, like you're going to foot the bill for some of the learnings that are going to have to happen yeah. as they work through this. But you know, one of the co-founders there and he's like, look, we're taking care of those first franchisees that help pave the way for this, you know, with some concessions and stuff like that. I don't exactly know what they're doing, but you know, which is the right thing to say. I think they're doing it. I don't have a reason not to believe it, but I get a lot of hot air thrown at me at those conferences. So, um, but <laughs> yeah. no, it, it, it was, you know, seemed to be doing the right thing. So we don't, but you don't know what Ellie is going to become yet either. So for sure, it's still in kind of that infancy stage. It'll be interesting to see their FDD this year then. So I'll be hawking that to see what we got. Because it's FDD season, baby. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> it is, man. Yeah, I mean, like February through April, man. Holy shit. Yeah. It's going to even, I mean, honestly, May, June still are, are pretty big. But you're right about the foot in the bill for that pet concept I was talking about before, uh, Pet Wall Clinic. We ended up getting a few big orange theory operators interested and they were, they really believe this was like right. Was this during COVID? We partnered with them. I think we partnered with them like a month into COVID. The pet space was like just starting. It's like big, you know, rocket ship phase, right? Where especially like all the pandemic puppies and all that stuff, like it was, it was a hot space. Uh, it's still obviously like, I think there's a lot of longevity there, but like, anyway, got Orange Theory operators in and they basically just told all their other Orange Theory buddies. So it kind of grew like word of mouth, which is amazing. But the interesting thing is we just learned so much about Orange Theory because we had some of like the earliest franchisees in the space or in that brand. And they told us, they're like, oh, like the Orange Theory you see today, it was nothing like that when I joined back in like, you know, 2013. And they were, yeah, they told us even like the logo. They're like, it was like a stick figure or something at some point. And I've tried to find pictures of it online. I can't find the old logo. But like, they're just like saying from even that perspective, they're like, you really got to like believe in the concept that like you can just make money in your town, regardless of what franchise or corporate is doing right in their world but ideally they have their shit together too and then it can be like become a you know billion dollar brand where you get all these amazing resources and technology that you can then give to your customers but it's funny like i just most people probably wouldn't buy a fitness brand with a stick figure logo you know no, <laughs> no. and you know all those orange theory franchises are left at the bank uh, because of it but like yeah but i think like when it, it, like from the franchise company perspective like i think orange theory i read an article because i'm trying to get their ceo with their founder on my podcast and he's like dude you know leave me alone i'm like okay well I'm gonna keep <laughs> so if you're listening david i want you on my podcast um, let's go let's no, go so, um i think they paused development early on because they were what was in the article was um, they were putting too much reliance on the actual instructors they were hiring and the programming wasn't simple enough. So they had to stop it and say, hey, we got we to gotta simplify this programming down to where we can hire 
we're not as dependent on the trainers as we are right now. And so they pause development. Like it's obviously a successful, like a wildly successful franchise story now, but like it wasn't without its growing pains. And I think, I think that's the lesson probably for like any prospective franchisee listening now is like, if you are looking at a brand that is in the hype cycle, in this exponential hockey stick kind of growth, expect growing pains, expect, you know, it's not going to be the smooth sailing that, you know, other brands have, there will be some serious growing pains and that's just, you know, where they are, you don't know, but, you know, just have extra working capital in the bank set aside, not just the 90 days that the FDD tells you to have, like have an extra chunk of dry powder in the bank because there's going to be some growing pains that go with it. Yeah. I got to get a, you know, Ben Little, he's on Twitter, Zaxby's franchisee. He said, I got to find the transcript. But he was saying like he doubles the working capital amount or even like possibly the whole investment. I mean, he's dealing with like multi-million dollars Zaxby's built outs. So a bit of a different scale that guy operates on. But uh, yeah, he was saying like you really need more capital. And the number one reason most people go out of business is because they run out of money. And the thing is, they, it doesn't like show up right in the FTD as a closure because depending on the brand, it's usually like there's a bigger franchisee who just gobbles you up. And, you know, that just that would just kill me if like you were, you know, maybe three months away from like hitting profitability and then everything would have been smooth, smooth sailing to a degree, but you just ran out of money. Like that just sucks. So well, people yeah, definitely it's, gotta well, it's like, it's that. like the FDD stuff, right? It's like, for whatever reason, the federal trade commission says a franchise company only has to disclose up to 90 days worth of working capital. Yeah. Well, if a franchise company wants to increase that amount to help people understand like a better number that they're going to have, well, now all of a sudden their investment goes up. And it's not conveniently $198,000.99, right? Like there's a whole game that goes into that. And so like, you know, take the item sevens with a grain of salt because you're, you know, it's only three months worth of working capital. And that probably assumes like no revenue coming in, but like you got to factor that into the ramp up because it's probably going to be longer than you think. And then, you know, it's like, okay, well, that item seven is based off of a single unit investment too. So if you end up looking at going the multi-unit route, you got to forget that that range that you saw on the item seven and plop another 30 or 40, 50 grand on top of it and or add 60. working capital to it. Six, yeah. yeah. Like, like, like you got to look at all these things and it's not like the way the FDDs are, and it's not franchise companies playing games like that. This is what the Federal Trade Commission says how franchise companies need to present the information to prospective franchisees. You got to pull different information from different sections of this FDD to kind of get the full picture of what you know you think you might need capital-wise to, to get into something. It's such a game on the franchisor side. So yeah, buyers just need to know how the game's played because it's not going to change anytime soon. Well, it's the same thing with item 19s. I mean, you know, you oh, pump it, yeah. you know, these juicy item 19s, right? Like, you know, pumping them out, but it's like, okay, well, what do the notes say? <laughs> What's in the notes? Yeah. Like there's one brand that sold like 300 franchises off this item 19 and they're sitting there going on podcasts and doing the whole circuit saying, we have a super high margin business. Well, they conveniently left out freaking labor on their item 19. Oh, and it's like, I know, ex- bro, like, and then they sell it some absentee multi-unit. And this is our corporate location. It's like, well, how are you running a corporate location without accounting for labor? That makes no sense. And it's like, well, we're a high margin business. Well, no shit. Like, yeah, if you don't disclose actual operating expenses, sure. But then like Milkshake Factory, you know, we were talking about before, like they've done a good job yeah. of like, they don't have any franchisees. They're getting going. They're bringing on some good franchisees. They were just like, hey, we're going to try to get as transparent as we possibly can across all our eight, nine, 10 locations, however many yeah. in the item 19. And these are the numbers. And some locations perform better than others because that's reality, right? So, you know, there's so many pieces of this puzzle, but um, it's a lot for, for buyers to deal with. But I think, 
Yeah. People really got to, I think, read the footnotes of item 19, right? And then, uh, yeah. Talk I mean, to franchisees. Like, if there's franchisees, talk to the franchisees. And that, because the franchisees can be unfiltered in their, they're not limited by what they can and can't talk to you about. Now, yeah, that's there's exactly an it. Art. Cause you, yeah. Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah, I know what you're going to say, but, yeah, but go on. Yeah. You got to be artful about the questions that you ask and how you ask them. Don't come in, you know, bull in a china shop. How much money did you make? And, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like you got to know the key metrics in the business. You know, if it's like a club Pilates, great. What's your retention rate, right? That's a great question to ask franchisees because yes. that's a key metric in that business. And item seven, hey, they're, you know, just so you know, they're kind of saying it's between X and X. Like, what did you see? You know, what was your yes. total budget for the business? How fast did it ramp up? How fast did you get to break in even, you know, blah, 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 right? Like you kind of, there's a whole art to have yeah. these conversations, but uh, oh, that's the most sure. unfiltered source of information you can get on the numbers. Crushing your dinner rush is table stakes. You need the HR and payroll solution that keeps you and your staff prepped for tomorrow. Paylocity for restaurants and hospitality helps HR focus on your employees by making recruitment smarter and onboarding faster. Plus, tools to train and engage staff whenever and wherever they work. Focus on what you do best. Go to paylocity.com slash restaurants. Something you said, though, I want to get your take on it, man. Franchise fees. You were saying like 20, 30, 40, 50. And I was like, oh, well, 60. Like, I'm yeah, seeing a lot yeah, of 60. 60 is new 50. Yeah, yeah, 60 is yeah, new 50. Exactly. Yeah. What is this? Like, is, it, is, is there a franchise fee inflation? Like, what the hell's going on? And before you answer that, I'm not actually looking for a macroeconomic take here because let's be honest, that's not us. But I think there's something, if I had to guess, I have no data to back this up. Keep that in mind. <laughs> but if I had to guess, if we went back to like the 90s and looked at the franchise fees, they're probably all, I mean, so like, okay, obviously there's some macroeconomic perspective where like the price of everything does go up over time generally. But like, I think that over the last 20 or maybe even the last 10, 15 brokers and FSOs especially now are becoming more prominent and a lot of new brands by default, I, I don't know how it happens. Like, do, I don't know if there's some, like, if, is it IFPG or maybe, I don't know if IFA, like how that, I don't think I, IFA is pretty neutral. So I doubt it's them, but like, it seems like if you're a new franchisor, you're almost told, maybe it's iFranchise Group who gives them this advice. I don't know where it comes from, but it's like, hey, use brokers and or FSOs to grow. Cause like, it's really hard to franchise on your own, which is true but they don't think through the capital side of it. So I think like, because right, if you're using a franchise sales organization and they're using brokers and you're probably losing, you know, I know, I mean, 80% of your franchise fee can be going away. Uh, so that that's my take is that like the average franchise fee has just gone up and up and up because people aren't doing their own deals on their own. They're doing development using outside sources. So crazy theory or accurate? I think I, I've been in this role for 18 years and I, and I got started with a company that predominantly had success selling through the broker networks, Advanaclean, back in the day. And um, back then, you know, there was three or four players in the broker game. You had TES, FranNet, and FranChoice. TES? The Entrepreneur Source. Oh, oh, they're like part of a coaches, IFPG now, right? Brokers that call themselves coaches. No, they're, yes. they're, still, they're <laughs> still standalone. And then they, they try to sell all their, their clients um, a TES franchise. Anyways, um, so... Um, <laughs> So back That's then classic. it was like, but but they were good. Like franchising wasn't this like, I think number one, franchising has gotten a lot more popular. 
partly from the franchisor perspective, probably because the PE money that's moving in. And, and this lady, Alicia Miller, who I've never met, but she sent me this advanced copy of this book that she just wrote about this whole PE landscape and franchising. It's actually always been there, but now it's kind of coming to light. It's a really, really insightful book. And um, I think it's called Big Money in Franchising. So yeah, yeah, it was a thing, but it wasn't like this mainstream thing that, that's kind of happening now. And so there's ultra competition for franchise companies to grow. And now in the broker side of things, there's no barrier to entry for anybody to number one, call themselves a franchise broker. And number two, just cook up a, a broker network. Like just start bringing in brokers underneath of themselves. Like there's no licensing, there's no credentialing, yeah. all those certifications that you see behind brokers' names, they don't mean anything because there's no accrediting body. There's no governing body. That's so exactly you it. see, you know, now you've got a lot of brokers coming into the space. And then you saw the rise of the FSOs. And, you know, it's an attractive proposition to prospective franchisees because it's largely pay for performance, right? And then you have now like some of the stuff that these brokers do is mind-blowing to me, like putting together projections and helping franchise candidates with projections, which is like, yep. no, you don't want to do that. Now it's like passive, like investing in a franchise is a passive. Look, there are some franchises that, that can be semi-absentee, but it, it's when like passive and like as a passive investment, like I see that and I'm like, what is going on here? Like it is not yeah, a form of passive investing. The whole, there's a few folks pushing this narrative of like, it's an asset class. And like, yeah, you know, I mean, the, 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 on paper, it's kind is. of in line with that passive mentality. But I think franchising is like it's starting to pick up steam. You're seeing a lot of people from real estate poking around. Hey, can I get better returns because I'm not getting the, the math isn't working right now and the multifamily game or whatever yep. it is. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It's like, look, actually, I think the math can be better with a franchise. But here's the difference. You got to operate this thing. Somebody has yes. to operate it. <laughs> Somebody has to build yeah. it. Like nobody's going to build it for you. And it's a different yeah. type of work than like what some of these folks are used to. But they get hooked up with one of these brokers that's going to tell them what they want to hear. And then they get them into a good sales process and they don't do the due diligence the right way. Like, you know, the expectations aren't going to be aligned. Their expectations won't, won't be reality with that. Yeah. It's really interesting you say that. Cause like, yeah, man, I mean, this just, there's just like, it's not, I don't know what it's like being a landlord. Like I got to imagine you still got to deal with tenants and stuff. Right. So like, but like, you know, this idea that you can just buy a franchise and keep your day job. One, the economics typically don't work out well. Like you're going to really delay your pushback if you hire from day one an amazing GM, right? You know, for most concepts, because like that's a six-figure salary that's coming out of your personal bank account. So unless you really have a ton of cash, it just really met, never met anyone who's like got the cash and willing to do that uh, from day one. And then so assuming you're not that guy, which you're probably not, or girl, you're going to have to do it yourself. And there's just no way you can keep a full-time job while like you have this massive pile of debt that you're building on day one. You know, you just can't do it. Like I, I've, I've heard talk to people who are like, yeah, like I tried it. And then I was like at work and I got like, there's one guy who got to the point he was going to the strip mall and like he bought a super expensive hotspot so that he could have internet access anywhere. And he was just trying to keep his job, but he was he would literally be in and out of the strip mall, like where his location was being built, like manage the construction and do all that stuff. But he's like, I just couldn't like, I couldn't like let that just construction happen without me looking at it. Like I had $400,000 on the line here. Yeah. No. If, if you have a demanding job, no way. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and you ain't putting your spouse to work unless, if, unless he or she wants to. I got guys, mainly guys reaching out to me like, hey, I want to buy a business for my wife. You know, kids are in kindergarten. I'm like, cool. Can I talk to your wife? And they're like, no, I'm going to do, I'm going to make the decision for her. I'm like, yeah, okay. Like, yeah, I know this is going to go. <laughs> 
But like, look, I but like, I have a I have a good friend who owns fifteen sport clips, and he has a full time, well, quote unquote, full time W two job. Wow, that's killer. But he's got a cushy gig. Like, if I say full time, probably works 15, 20 hours a week on autopilot with a good company and all that kind of stuff. It, it can be done with sure. certain with a very small pool of franchises. Did he grow from zero to fifteen, like building, or did he acquire a bunch? He grew from zero to five organically. New locations, opened them up. While he had the job. While he had the job, yeah. He's had the same job for as long. And then the opportunity to acquire two five-unit operators in the same market emerged around the same time. And he got sure. funding through Live Oak Bank, which Live Oak's amazing at this stuff. Yes. And then he took down both of them. And so he went from five to 15. And that was a big jump for him because his five-unit systems weren't good enough to run a 15 unit system. So he had, he used monday.com and like a lot of HR stuff, but his, he's got really good managers in place. Like hair carry that's been done many a times because there's a, an established labor pool of people that you can tap into to staff your business, right? Like it's a career for stylists. Yes. And that's how sport clips, like when they got started way back in the day, you know, when I was a little pup in franchising, they were like, we want you to keep your job. Because you're not going to make the kind of money you want to make off one unit. You got to open up multiple units. First one's the hardest. Rinse and repeat. Wow. Keep growing. Keep scaling. And it worked. Supercuts did the same thing. Great Clips did the same thing. And I do think hair care is going to make a big comeback now and because there's a couple brands out there that I really like that have been proven. But but yeah. and But he's, you know, he's processing payroll, you know. He's making he's making more money off of his, off the interest that he's making on, on his sweep account than he is out of one of his locations. Holy crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, he's got a massive, massive amount of employees underneath him. But uh, so I, I tell you, it can be done, but with a very small pool of franchises. Fair enough. Even like, you know, our good friend JT, who will be on the podcast eventually. I can't wait to, like, the three of us <laughs> just letting hot, hot take, take JT. JT. That's what we call him, yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He'll be doing something similar with his fencing franchise that he just bought into. But does he have a vested operator? Is that person vested in the business? You have to ask JT that. <laughs> okay, we'll ask him on the podcast next. But like, I do think home services, because they can, it, it's still, you gotta be picky with the brand, but like generally a lower investment than a brick and mortar brand. And it can ramp quicker to the point where the economics aren't as brutal. Whereas, you know, spending 750K to build a brick and mortar location and having a GM on a hundred or 120K salary that whole time. Like it's just, you're just killing yourself there. So you think you can do it with home services? Start at semi-absentee? I think there are certain brands where you can, if you have the capital, which I don't want to speak for JT, but I think he's got some money. See, I'm on the complete opposite end of that opinion. Really? I don't think home service franchises well, sell I, I well. I think the, my key caveat here is I'm not saying home, because dude, home services, like that's another thing. That's such a massive category, home services. You have gutter cleaning, lawn mowing. You got so many different, I mean, I could, we could list them out, right? Yeah. Restoration. There is, you know, on our follow-up conversation, I'll find a few brands where I think you could do it with. Okay. And by the way, this means, this doesn't mean like wire a franchise fee, keep your job. It's you can hire a GM, I think, in year one. And by the end of it, you can go back to doing something else. That's my take with a few brands. But no, it's not because like the, one of the biggest sales comp franchise sales companies, right? Most of their stuff is home services and they're always pushing the semi-absentee thing. And I'll say nine out of 10 times, it's garbage. The whole keep your job. So yeah, I guess, I don't know what I'm saying. Maybe a hybrid. Well, we're like, I, I think I, what I heard you say is maybe like there's always these diamonds in the rough, like that yeah. just franchise companies have something figured out. But- generally, 
what I tell folks is like, it's actually easier. There are more manager run friendly franchises from day one in health and wellness, beauty, hair care, that kind of stuff than home services. You can do it with home services, but you might be better off like finding an operator who's full of piss and vinegar that is just wants to run through walls and like get yeah. them vested in the deal somehow, like, a, like get, ask them to put some skin in the game and then you're the bank. And then you can groom them if the franchise company has the right systems for them to plug into. I actually think it's harder to do. We got to ask JT. Yeah, you're right. What is he doing? I'm sure he's got some crazy finance back end. You know, I say finance. (laughs) He says finance, you know. uh, No, he's a smart dude. He's, you know, he's, you know, he's going to do it right. But I think if you could find an operator, I think there's a lot more options for people to like partner with somebody. Yeah. And I mean, I think that presents its own challenges. It's like, how do you find them? First of all, like most people aren't coming from, let's just use fencing. Like you don't know the fencing game. So like how is some corporate guy going to figure out the, I, mean, I guess you just poach maybe someone from a local company, but it's definitely tough to pull off. And yeah, I mean, I only know now that I'm saying this, only one person who did it, they did it with a, a flooring company, but they, they had like a blue collar background. They'd worked in that world before. So yeah. like they just kind of know how to have the conversations. That's the other thing is like, especially this is an interesting one, the cultural shift in like a home services business versus like wellness, right? Like I would like right the the vibe of employees. I know this because I used to work in HVAC before I got into franchising. I mean, it's just the blue collar culture is so different than if you're work used to working in like a white collar job where you have like to wear a buttoned in button down shirt and tuck it in or maybe even a suit. Like I, I don't know. And then you're dealing with people who probably didn't go to college, you know, and they don't care about college. You know, it's like they do what they want. Like, right. There's no like like manners become less important. I don't even know how to say it. There are amazing, talented people in the blue collar world of home services. For sure. Um, For but sure. It, it is a, compared to the corporate white collar stuff. It is it is completely different. And, you know, the days start earlier, the days end earlier, typically. Like you're, yes. you're grinding it. You're starting at 6.30, 7 a.m. Like to get everything set up and to get out there. Oh, yeah. And, you know, those text messages start at that time. And, you yes. know, it's like, you know, you got to, there are great people out there. And, and I, I was in disaster restoration for eight years. And I remember I, I used to sell the franchises and the, the single biggest concern that people had about that business. And this is back in like from 2006 to 2014. And I think there's been about 18 new disaster restoration franchises that have popped up since then. But um, I was like, hey, I, I've got a master's degree in industrial organizational psychology. I'll help you hire your first employee legally, whatever labor board, if you're listening to this, I did it all legally. But that was people's biggest concern. And we had a process like, and this is this, I actually think this process would still apply to most franchisees hiring, but it's, you have an intro call with somebody who applies on one of these job boards and it's 15, 20 minutes, get them pumped up, get them psyched, feel them out a little bit. And then be like, Hey, there's one thing I'm going to ask you for during this process. I'm going to send you this five question open-ended form. I want you to complete. And it was like, we had the stupidest questions. It was like, Hey, if you break somebody's lamp in their house, how are you going to handle that situation? And like five, like four other basic open-ended questions. And all we were looking for is how fast does this person turn it around to us? And, you know, generally how much thought do they put into it? We don't need to see an essay. And we told people that. And that little thing, if you do a 15-minute call, you ask them to complete that little thing, it weeded out so many people. And yep. you, could, you could, by looking at their responses, you could, you could actually gain some insight into the candidate that you wouldn't gain in a face-to-face interview. Like, I believe it would still be super effective. Yeah. But anyway, so the labor, yeah. I mean, but... It can be done. It's just 
don't walk into a Chuck E. Cheese and hire the general manager like I did just to try to do a home service franchise. <laughs> Send my absentee. I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> um, did you literally walk into a Chuck E. Cheese? Look, I mean, there's more to the story than that. But yeah, I mean, so, uh, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> I had taken my kids there because there was like nothing else to do in during COVID. And I have twins. I took Will, my son, there first. Yeah. And and I went in and and it was pretty busy. And there was one guy working, this guy that was running this whole thing. And he, you know, you meet those people who are just like, damn, that, guy, that guy's working hard and he's super talented, knows what he's doing. Yeah. And then I brought Will home and Karis, my daughter, you know, threw a fit because she's like, why didn't you take me? And I'm like, well, I'll take you next week. And so took Karis next week and he was there again. And I was thinking about investing in a certain franchise. And I was like, hey, <laughs> I was like, you want to... Uh, <laughs> You, you ever thought about kind of doing something different? And he was like, absolutely. And it was, we ended up talking for a long time and there was a big, long story. He was a great fit, super talented, super successful. The reason it didn't work out with him is because he had another business that ended up being so successful because he had the talent that he couldn't stick with me. So anyways. Gotcha. Okay. But yeah. I literally walked into Chuck E. Cheese and hired the GM. I wouldn't <laughs> recommend that amazing. to people. That's amazing. Yeah. Labor's, I mean, th there's a lot. I do like that filtering system with the like quick questionnaire. We used to do that in FranDev at the past company I worked at. Yeah. Do quick intro call. And then, yeah, like 10 minute questionnaire. And yeah, the people who just can't even sit down for 10 minutes to fill that out. It's like, all right, they're never going to get through this, the franchise buying process. So saves you a lot of time. And yeah, I also want to call out definitely tons of amazing people in the blue collar world. You know, I was just trying to articulate, obviously, that vibe difference. It's Especially different. Like, it's a different, it's a yeah. different beast. And it's important to think about. It really is. Because like all this, there's like home services. It's always been a good category in franchising, but now it's like yes. rising through the ranks to the attention of a lot of people. And, and on paper, like I do believe like home services probably has some of the best math out there because yes. of what you said about the low investment, the ability to scale certain yeah. franchises. Yeah. But what it takes to operate it is, you know, it's different than when you got the employees and customers in the same four walls. Um, oh, 100%. And like, I think, uh, especially right, the ETA crowd, the people who are getting MBAs or they're at an investment banking shop or PE shop and they want to, you know, acquire business. And through that journey, they start to look at franchises. It's like, okay, do you realize that, you know, your world of like happy hours in Wall Street is going to be very different if you now all of a sudden are running a lawn mowing business, right? And your employees, it's just going to be very different, right? And like, I don't think a lot of people actually, they just look at, they do the numbers on the spreadsheet. They don't think about what is their life actually going to be like when they wake up and their world is that law and loan business. Like it is not glamorous. It is not nearly as fun and you will not get as much street cred, right? For even though you might end up making a lot more money, but like, you know, that's just the thing. I think people really need to like put themselves in that, those shoes. Cause like I, for one, would never do home services because I'm scarred for my HVAC world. Like I just, I didn't enjoy it. And which is good. Like, I just, I know what I like and like, I would burn out very quickly, even if the numbers are amazing. I just know myself, I'd burn out. So like people should really try to, it's tough to like get that experience if you haven't like actually just worked in it. But if there's a way to like test the waters before you commit and change courses with your life, I think people should really try to do that. It's an in the field business. Like if, if you don't like being in the field, yes, probably oh, not going to be a good is category. Just, just like getting hives from that. Being in the field. Oh, God. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it, it's not a behind the desk business. And if you like no. sitting behind a desk, and, and I learned that about myself, to be honest with you, going through it. Like I was, I'm, I'm not a great field guy. I like to sit behind my computer and talk to you about franchising. Like that's, that's what gets me, <laughs> that's what gets me juiced up. But, yeah. but that, yeah. that, and then, so the way that you can get a taste of this thing 
is if you're looking at a particular franchise, go visit with a franchisee and it's worth hopping on a plane if it's one of the top, you know, don't go to the bottom performers. Sure. Whatever. Go to a top performer that you connect with that has a business that you want to build size-wise and hop on a plane, spend a day with them or her. And they will typically like, hey, I want to come work with you. Put me to work in your business. I don't want to sit there and like analyze everything you're doing. I just want to experience it to see what it's, get my eyes on this thing. Go do that. And that will help you see like if this is something you feel like you can do. Yep. It's worth the money because like people should really think about that. It's like if they find out they don't want to do this, well, good. You just saved yourself how much money on launching that franchise. And it actually reminds me of uh, Culver's does that with their franchisees at Discovery Day. Or Disco- it's a, it's, I think it's a week. They make you work in, in one of their Culver's for oh, seven days straight. And they said that like they would have grown a lot faster if it wasn't for that. But right, like a lot of people after working seven days inside of a you know quick serve burger restaurant, they're like, you know what? I don't like this that much. <laughs> like, I'm good. I don't need to do that. Yeah, it's smart. It's smart. Like for long-term sustained success of that brand, which it's demonstrated, right? Like, aren't there AUVs? Like Their AUVs are ridiculous. It's yeah. like 3.5 or 6 million. They're at like over 900 locations. They've only closed two stores since the ni- 1984, 1987, whenever they started. Like that is like, people like to throw these stats around franchising. Like, oh, it's, you know, like a much safer investment, which let's be honest, a lot of brands know it's not that much safer. Yeah. Culver's though is the like epitome of like, if you're just starting off your own mom and pop, burger shop and a Culver's opens up next to you, good luck. Like, seriously, you're in trouble. I would yeah. not want to be next to a Culver's in the burger business. That's where like the royalties and all that, like pay them because they are going to crush it for you. It's just funny, man. Yeah. There's another brand, Funbox, that does that too. I've, I've tweeted about them. Yeah. I mean, I think their growth is, si- you're single-handedly responsible for their growth in a responsible way. I think I did may have caused something like that, um, <laughs> which I did not have any direct affiliation with them. I just thought it was a cool business, but they told me that they make their anyone who comes to a discovery day, you have to spend, you know, it's like a pop-up bounce house. Like a, they do festivals basically like for kids. It's like 300 or 400 square feet of bounce house. It's crazy. But they make franchisees work a whole day. So like they're on their feet all day. They're setting up the bounce house. They're taking it down. They're managing tickets and like people coming inside, you know, to the, to the festival or whatever. And yeah, there's like, that'll weed a lot of people out. Some people are like, oh, this is crazy. I'm not doing this for, you know, 15 weekends out of my year. Right. Yeah, so good note there for emerging franchisors. All right, we're over time, man, but that was good. I think that's a pod. That's a pod, right? Let's do it. Let's get JT on next. Sick, yeah. JT coming up next, folks. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen.